Listen to me, frankly. Happy's getting pissed. And we all know what happens when Happy gets pissed. He's not happy. When he's not happy, he's pissed, you follow me? We, we want to keep Happy happy. That's right. Welcome to the One Broken Cog Podcast. Join John and Brian as they share small adjustments that lead to major impacts. One Broken Cog Podcast. We are one day away from the election at the time of this recording, and I, you know, I'm kind of nervous. But also excited at the same time. I'm not really sure why, but definitely looking forward to this being over. But I read some interesting stats the other day. Happy people are 31% more productive and three times more creative than others. Now, happiness improves business profitability by 147%. And companies with happy employees outperform the competition by 20%. So the key to success is really the balance of keeping your workers happy and your business healthy. Now, this is obviously easier said than done as employers either don't care about their employees' happiness or they don't know how to make their employees happy. They also don't know if their employees are actually happy as many employers are shocked when their staff leaves for greener pastures, right? Well, this leads me to my guest today who really looks at the neuro and social science data behind what really creates happier workplaces in order to repair the environments that result in all of these broken cogs we talk about here. And in the process, shape cultures that drive sustainable innovation performance, and well-being. And she's none other than Sarah Radikin. Now, some background on Sarah by day. She's chief happiness officer at a global corporation. She is a radical positivity activist. She's also the owner of Happiness is Courage, Inc., sharing her message of hope, happiness, and gratitude as avenues to greater personal and professional resilience and well-being. Now, Sarah has spoken at conferences across North America, facilitated numerous workshops on workplace excellence, and work with groups from one to 200 plus to discover and embrace their personal strengths, ambitions, and relationship goals. Sarah, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome to the One Broken Cog podcast. I'm so excited to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, anytime. It's always great to have an awesome perspective like yours. It's so different and unique. I I wanted to jump at the opportunity to talk to you. First, I'd love for you to define chief happiness officer for the audience and for myself, uh, you know, because I have no idea what it is. So a chief happiness officer is not the company party planner, and we are not the activities director. What we do is we look at the science behind what actually creates environments where employees can really engage with whatever it is that makes them tick and drives them to hook into the organization's mission and be much more productive and just enjoy what they do. Because as you said, employees who like what they do, do it better. What do you think right now is the number one cause of unhappiness in the workplace, if you could narrow it down, maybe or top three, because it's very hard to narrow it down into one, right? Well, I think right in this exact moment in time, you hit on it. I mean, we're all sort of holding our breath, waiting for this election cycle to be over. And there has been, this has been an interesting year for people, just the high level of stress people are carrying around with them. So I would actually say that stress writ large whether it's in their personal lives or professional environments, is really the core challenge that people are dealing with across industries. So kind of uncertainty about the election, all the angst and Mm -hmm. not being able to share freely. You know, a lot of people are not sharing who they're voting for, obviously, because they're a fear of offending somebody or losing their friendship or alliances. Who knows, right? It's, it's, It's a very crazy time we're living in. Yeah, and it's not just the election, right? I mean, we have, of course, uh, we're going on, what, month nine of a global pandemic, which carries with it also quite a bit of uncertainty. We've dealt with civil unrest on a couple of different topics across North America. 
And I think that's um, any one of those would have been enough to knock people back on their heels. But this is a crucible year where we're dealing with so many really big ticket stress items. And humans don't like to be under stress anyway. And I think the problem we're seeing with many organizations is they didn't plan for any of these challenges, which is fair. It's a black swan, but it's like a whole, a whole flock of black swans, right? And people are just like, what is happening right now? And the brain does not like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I read a great stat, and I don't know if you agree with this, but they say that 67% of full-time employees with access to free food at work are extremely or very happy at their current job. See, I, I would be very happy myself. I actually worked for a company that had catered lunches three times a week, and it was amazing. Everybody loved it. We got a lot fatter, but it was great. <laughs> it, it depends on the company and like where you're located, but certainly taking one thing off of people's plates, pun intended, can help decrease some of the insanity of their day. And also the thing about free meals is it tends to encourage people to come together socially. And we know that developing relationships in the workplace is a prime motivator of stronger uh, job satisfaction. And so it kind of meets a couple of different socio-psychological uh, needs that people have. Yeah, no, it does. It really, really does. That's why a lot of people are depressed because they couldn't go out to eat together. It was this big issue. Okay. What do you think about relationships at work? It's, it's a very interesting topic in and of itself. When people are hiring, is this something they can plan for and kind of cultivate and push, or is this something that happens organically? Um, so I don't know that you can necessarily – you can't necessarily hire for like friendships in the workplace, but you, what you can do is set a stage as a person, a people leader, or somebody who's in charge of sort of the corporate cultural navigation of environments that do encourage people to have those uh, more. Well, I, I hesitate to use the term, but they're like more more intimate relationships with their coworkers, not like boyfriend girlfriend intimacy but like seeing each other beyond just the job description. So if this accountant talks to that supply chain manager and they only ever communicate with regards to their job titles, that doesn't lead to very good relationships. But as people develop a sense of trust and they learn more about each other as humans, that's where you see some really interesting connections happening. And that tends to lead to greater engagement because you feel like you've got a tribe at work and we all want to feel like we belong somewhere. Even introverts want to belong. They just don't necessarily want to have small talk with the people in their tribe. No, it's true. I mean, we've seen the data behind this. When you have a great leader who encourages, you know, weekly or regular team meetings, all hands meetings with the entire organization, mixers, you know, offsite events, things of that nature, awards, dinners, whatever it may be, uh, you see the camaraderie build and you see obviously the results take shape from there. That's something I definitely recommend. Now, as far as becoming a CHO, what, what led you to become this? Is this something that was you created or is it something somebody was just hiring one day for this and you said, hey, I'd be a great fit? Talk to me about the journey. So I was actually, when I discovered the concept of a chief happiness officer, um, I, had been to, I was working on my first graduate degree and I was researching corporate ethics, which is not necessarily the most cheerful topic ever. And I randomly ran across Sean Aker's TED Talk about the happiness advantage, which is really inspiring. And it, it sparked something in my brain and said, wait a minute, people are studying this stuff. This isn't just touchy-feely, somebody's the class clown. There's a tremendous amount of data behind this. And so I went on to finish my graduate program, but I also started researching all of this incredible, really solid data behind what is it that lets people feel happiness writ large, but more importantly to me, what is it that creates an environment where people feel happy at their job? 
because I think that's a missing piece in a lot of these conversations. So to fast forward, I actually randomly found that there were organizations who were providing um, training and certification in chief happiness officer hood. So I went to my boss and I said, I want to do this. And he was like, yeah, sure. That sounds like fun. So I went and got certified um, and then I brought it back to the, to the business. And what we found was our team went from a not so great cohesion to becoming a really tightly running machine in a very short amount of time because it wasn't really, we just changed some paradigms and how people work together. We changed expectations for interactions. We encouraged people to bring their whole selves to work and not in the kitschy, be authentic in the workplace. If you can say that, but if you don't give people the space to actually do it, they're not going to. I mean, everybody knows that's a huge threat if you don't do it well. Right. And we just saw a radical, radical change. And so uh, the company said, huh, maybe there's something to this. <laughs> and so they gave me an actual real job for it. That's awesome. That's great. You saw a need and you jumped in and you were the right person for the job. When you were doing this, what, what was the greatest adjustment needed at your company? To, to really turn the corner as far as happiness goes? I would say the biggest challenge that we had was people really didn't have the emotional intelligence to understand how to make those connections. So the, what the science tells us is there are basically two levers to increasing job satisfaction, which leads to happiness in the workplace. And so those two factors are, do, does a person understand how the work they're doing matters to the organization and, and how it's valued. That's one piece of it. And then the other piece of it is the relationships that they develop with their coworkers, with their customers, with your vendors, anybody you interact with in that professional space. And so what we did was we talked about more transparency from leadership. It's one thing to say our overarching sales goal is X zillion dollars. Cool. If I don't work in sales, I can't connect to that. Right? So, right. How is the supply chain or the research scientist or the facilities head or the admin assistant? How do those roles come together as part of the puzzle? And the better people understand their place in the grand scheme, the higher their satisfaction is as they connect into, oh, what I do matters. What I'm doing is part of this huge team effort. It isn't just busy work with the red swing line stapler. It actually matters. And it made a tremendous difference once people saw that. You know, it's amazing how basic that is, but also how profound it is. How many people miss that, right? I think there's a stat. It's um, you know, only 42% of employees are happy with the rewards and recognition their companies offer. So sometimes, you know, the, the leadership are disconnected with the mindset of their employees. They can't really temperature check or gauge that employee sentiment at the time. And they figure, oh, everything's great. Everything's fine when they really don't understand it. There's not a lot of feedback being shared. There's not a lot of interaction in team meetings. And they really miss it. And of course, that leads to churn, underperformance, and so on and so forth, right? Yeah, and that turnover is costing American companies alone billions of dollars every year. And that's just a turnover statistic, right? We're looking at disengagement levels that hover right around 70 to 80% on average, which is another half trillion dollars in lost productivity. I mean, this isn't just a touchy-feely, feels-good topic. There's a real fiscal uh, crisis that we're facing because people don't understand or know how to love what they do. And it feels like this is a, like something out of the 60s. Oh, you shouldn't have to love what you do. And I think what leadership oftentimes misses <laughs> is they think that people should just be like intrinsically motivated. And they are for a while, but if you never get that feedback loop, or if it's like once a year at your performance review, 
or that once a year employee voice survey that nobody ever follows through on anyway, right? I mean, these are right. really problematic for people. No, it is. But you know what's interesting if you think about this? It's kind of like politics in the office or meeting. And what I mean by that is, you look at like John F. Kennedy said, you know, ask not of what your country can do for you, but what you can do from your country. Mm-hmm. And now everything is your hand out, me, me, me. You know, it's kind of like the country now is a kowtowing to the people. And it's the same in the office, right? Before it was, hey, just be happy you have a job. Be happy you can put a roof over your head. Look at the other countries are struggling. But now it's like, hey, we want more. And the companies are shifting and saying, yes, what do we do to solve this? And what can we do to differentiate and give? Uh, do you see kind of a parallel there? I do. And I think we, we're seeing some generational expectations of change. Like you said, the, um, the boomers were just glad to have a, have a job, right? And they didn't question authority. Whereas my millennial colleagues and the Gen Z that are coming up behind them, they have different expectations of their workplace. And the, the, one of the challenges organizations have is they don't really do a good job of developing a strategy around employee engagement. They just kind of throw things at the wall and they wait to see what sticks. And that's got a couple of really big problems because one is you're wasting a ton of money on stuff that doesn't work. Um, just because you don't know what size you should be creating for your organization. You know, maybe some groups really like meditation, maybe some don't. And I see a lot of companies bring in like meditation as the cure-all and there is no silver bullet, right? And not everybody loves transcendental meditation, so that's a problem. But if you bring in a program, and then you take it away, then you've just triggered loss aversion, which actually actively disengages your people more. So then you've got people who are mad because you've taken away their quote unquote cool benefit, even if they never used it. Management is mad because their employees seem like ungrateful jerks and nobody wins in this, in this cycle of doom, you know? No, it's absolutely correct. You know, and a lot of companies out there, as we know, they're not proactive, you know, they're mostly reactive and it's just too late at the point of, of acting that way. And the machine is rolling and it's hard to slow it down to ad- address these type of situations. So I completely agree. Where do you see most companies failing today in your view? I think they're not really listening when people tell them what they need or there, cause there's a sort of, um, there's this tendency in leadership where people think that they have to have all the answers because they have the job title. And I don't think that's fair. I mean, a manager or a, a human resources officer or whoever, nobody's clairvoyant, right? You can't read the minds of your people. And so you have to, first of all, establish trust because if you ask people, like we see these employee surveys and we know people are not giving true, true responses to them. There's no way workplace X has 95% engagement when you see all the staff on their phones surfing Amazon and Facebook and not paying attention to their jobs, right? So you have... <laughs> a lack of trust, which is causing some huge problems for organizations. And then you have managers who don't think that they should, they should, they should make themselves look vulnerable by asking, hey, what do you really need? Or they don't listen. They, you know, they say, well, what do you want? And people throw stuff at them and they get overwhelmed. But what they need to do is look past the actual blurted out answers, right? And see, what is this trend looking like? Are, what are people saying? What is this landscape look like? Maybe people just need more flexible schedules and they don't know how to phrase that. Maybe they need to have more personal time to deal with the fact that they're homeschooling their kids or whatever the situation is. But I think what managers would benefit from is taking a deep breath and actually talking to their people as if they were humans (laughs) and respecting the fact that they work with intelligent human beings who understand their own needs 
And as long as you're not afraid to express those, you can probably work together to come to a place where you offer some programming or some support or something that will create an environment where people say, wow, this company cares about me as a person. I'm going to dig in here and do some really amazing stuff here. No, absolutely. Do you think the issue also has to do with the employee coming in, not aligning with the company's mission, vision, and purpose or their value, so to speak? Yeah, I think there's two, there's two angles to that. One is, um, so I do a lot of coaching and I talk to people about their values and I've yet to actually meet a client who could articulate their personal values in a meaningful way. True. I think we don't do that as a society. We either parrot back what our parents or our faith tradition sort of hands us on a platter and says, here's your values, or we just don't think about it. And so I think there's some really good value and as individuals kind of doing that work. It doesn't take a ton of time to sort of sit with yourself and say, what are the things that really matter to me and why? And how do I live into those? And then companies, right? I mean, like we see these companies with their mission statements that are nebulous or unclear or just downright false, right? right. Or their, their value statements like Enron, right? Courage and honesty and integrity. <laughs> Serious? Like that's not accurate. So yeah, I think companies need to be careful how they're, they need to be honest about what they're trying to do in the world and they need to live into their values too. Yeah, it's true. Sometimes it comes off as being politically, you know, correct way of saying it's, it's, it's as if, you know, Hey, listen, this didn't work out because this person just didn't match up or align with our values. Well, again, it could be politically correct. And in a fact that, well, no, it was just because you had a really bad culture. You took this person for granted. There was no upper mobility, no communication. And the person got poached on LinkedIn by your competitor who's offering more money and, and gratitude or respect or whatever it may be. So yeah, it's just masking the greater problem. You know, that's not the real problem. You know, if you peel the onion back, there's, there's much more happening there than just what, what they're mentioning. So, you know, sir, tell me a little bit about Happiness is Courage, Inc. So Happiness is Courage was born, actually, so I'm paramilitary, and I like to do a lot of work with military-based or veteran-facing organizations. And what I realized was happiness to a lot of people feels like this flighty fairy dust concept. But the truth of the matter is, if you come into this space with a core value of happiness, let me back this up. I don't define happiness as a goal, but I think that happiness is the measure that we use to see if the life that we're living aligns to our values and our priorities. And when you find yourself in that space, then happiness is the emotion that appears at that time because our emotions are just our response to our environment. That's all they really are. So, so what I found was that if I could walk into a space with happiness as a core value, it gave me that extra oomph. I needed to deal with some pretty crazy stuff. I mean, you can be scared or you can be angry and you can have that adrenaline burst. It'll get you through that immediate crisis, but it's going to leave you with an adrenaline hangover. Happiness is a sustainable source of energy that just keeps you going through some pretty rugged landscapes. So that's how, where the name came from. And I decided that there are lots of companies out there who just don't know what to do about this. They want their people to like their jobs and they want their people to like coming to work whatever that looks like in today's world. And they want them to be engaged and creative and forward thinking and to be thinking about the organization as a, as a career opportunity and they don't know what to do about it. So I like to help them understand what are your challenges? Why are your people not engaged? Let's get them back on board and see what we can do about your production and your productivity. And we know, I mean, PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, put out a report saying that for every dollar spent on well-being, 
your return on investment is $2.30. So it's a pretty decent return for a pretty minimal investment. No, it is. Absolutely. Definitely. So what would you say to those businesses out there that are struggling with this as far as your greatest learning from when you first took on this role and you made those adjustments, you saw the impact, you saw the need to move. What would you tell them as far as your greatest learning and accomplishment as far as being a chief happiness officer? I would say companies need to be realistic about what it is that they're trying to accomplish. Um, if you only care about your CSR metrics, you're probably not ever going to see benefit because you're not doing the things that you need to have sustainable cultural change. But if you want to find ways to get your company moving in the right direction and get your people back on board and kind of take that, that crazy stress out of the equation for them, then understand what's the root cause of that crisis and do the hard work you need to do to change what's causing the friction. Because until you do that, you're just throwing Band-Aids at the problem. That's a great point. Great, great point. And it's, 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 it's tough because I've experienced my life, you know, they always say change mostly only happens when the pain is greater than the fear of change mm-hmm. itself, right? So it, it, it's completely against the proactive approach that I always recommend. People say, well, we'll see what happens. We'll ride it till the wheels fall off and then we'll, we'll adjust and fix it. And sometimes it's too late. You just can't do it. And your competitor will end up drinking your milkshake. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, There Will Be Blood, but there's a famous scene in that movie where, hey, I drink your milkshake, right? You don't want that to happen to you. So it's been great, Sarah. I love this conversation. It's so much great food for thought. Anything you'd like to share with our audience before we wrap up? Any words of wisdom or any type of best practice you'd like to share? I think in today's world, really your main goal needs to be getting ahead of the stress curve. You can't change the environment. I can't control the election results. I certainly can't make the coronavirus thing magically disappear. But I can help my teams understand healthier ways to deal with that. And by doing that, you are automatically taking away some of that amygdala hijack that's keeping people from making their best decisions. And right now, we need everybody to be in top decision-making form. So find ways to help your teams de-stress in ways that are sustainable, and those results are going to blow you out of the water. Definitely. Love it. Sarah, last question, just a personal question, is to get to know you a little bit better. You're on an island for the rest of your life. You can only bring one book, one movie, and one album. What would they be? So my book would be The Hobbit because it's been a favorite of mine since I was four. Um, I don't really watch movies, so I would I would skip the movie actually altogether. And my brother is in a reggae band called Thrive, so I would bring one of their albums as a fond memento. Nice. That's great. Great. Sarah, it's been awesome. How do people get in touch with you and connect with you? So my website is happinessiscourage.com. Um, my contact information is all on there. I'm on LinkedIn, Sarah Radican, and I love to make professional connections. Sarah, it's been fantastic. And before you go, who is going to win the election? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Unless you want to make a prediction. Hopefully, then, you know. the American people. Hopefully the American people are going to win the election. <laughs> now, do you think that will happen? I... I don't know, Brian. I don't know. We'll see what happens. (laughs) All right. There you go. Sarah, it's been a pleasure. Have a wonderful day. Fingers crossed for the election. Uh, It's been awesome. Looking forward to connecting soon again. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. You got it.
Thank you for spending time with us today. We encourage you to join the many businesses that we have helped to achieve their objectives, align their departments, and increase their revenue. You can start by reaching out to us at results at onebrokencog.com. Together, we will make small adjustments that will lead to major impacts to your business, your culture, and your bottom line. 